I think it's, uh, it's probably self-evident that uh, many of us um, don't mind being called a servant. Most of us don't want to be treated like a servant, uh, but all of us love to be served by servants. Uh, there is something sweet about being served. Um, when you go to a restaurant, they bring you your drinks and your food. It's nice to have someone come in and serve you by cleaning your house for you. Or, or on a hot day that someone cut your lawn for you. I mean, uh, being served is, a, is really a lovely thing. And God has brought this loveliness into the church in the role of a deacon. Now, if you're new here, we've been going through this letter that Paul wrote to his young pastor, protege, uh, Timothy, and he's giving him instructions on the nature of the church. This is how the church is to function in a broken world. And God has been giving instructions to us about what that looks like. Uh, and part of that is understanding the nature of leadership in the church. The leadership in the church, uh, last week we talked about were elders. Uh, he didn't speak so much to the function of an elder, but he spoke to the characteristics or the qualities of an elder. And, and this week he turns to speak about another uh, layer of leadership, and that would be, of course, the the role of deacon. A deacon simply means to serve. That's all it means. It can be service to a table as a waiter. It can be service in terms of laying down your life for the sins of the world as Christ served in Mark chapter 10. So it's just service in a variety of contexts. And so Paul begins to unpack for us the qualities of what it is to be a deacon. Again, he moves away from function. He speaks more to the characteristics of a deacon. I, I want to lift our minds about the glory of this position in the church. It's often seen as kind of a, a junior varsity position, and yet Scripture seems to paint it in a very different light than that. In fact, John Calvin, the reformer of the 16th century, said, it's not at all an earthly office. It's a spiritual charge from God. They are not only in a public estate, it means that they not only work in the public sphere, uh, but they belong to the spiritual realm of the church, and they are there as God's officers. So, so what is God's design for a deacon? How do, we, how do we qualify, or how do we see people's qualifications to be a deacon in, in the church? And I want to do what I did last week, because there's a lot of parallels between deacon and elders, I want to look like through windows. This is, this is kind of how we ought to see them. In four ways would be their personal lives, their personal lives. Uh, secondly, their spiritual lives. Uh, thirdly, we'll look at their family life. And then fourth, look at their ministry life. So I'll go through those again if you're taking notes. Personal life and uh, spiritual life and uh, family life, and of course, ministry life. Th these are windows through which we can look to assess, is this person qualified to be a deacon? It helps us understand the characteristics of it. Well, first, their personal life. And obviously, their personal life is to be, to be godly. Look with me at verse 8. He says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So you see the word likewise there. Right away we know that something is going on. He's talked about the elders as a position in the church, and he says likewise. So he brings us right down to another tier of leadership, that is the deacons. Likewise, deacons must be dignified. Now, the word dignified just means 
worthy of respect, honorable, uh, temperate, you know, sober-minded, it would mean. It, not, not flippant, not frivolous, not casual, but there's a seriousness to the, to the person, this dignified. But he goes on to explain it further by these negatives. You see there's three negatives. They're not double-tongued. In other words, they don't speak one word to someone but mean something different, or they don't speak a word to someone and then a different word to another. There's truthfulness, there's sincerity in their speech. They know how to keep confidences. They're not double-tongued. They don't speak out of both sides of their mouth. Now, but also notice that they don't indulge in too much wine. Now note, this is not a prohibition against wine, but it is a warning against excessive use of wine. Uh, in other words, the deacon is to be tempered. The deacon is to be moderate and, and able to control these appetites of the flesh, whether it's food or alcohol or entertainment. Uh, you also see that this deacon is to be not a lover of money. These three, not this, not this, not a lover of money, not, not drawn, greedy, kind of wanting more, but, but able to live at the station of life that he has, a kind of a, a, a satisfaction, a contentment with the simplicity of his life. You know, deacons often handle money and resources of the church, and so they need to be, again, moderate. They're paying their own bills. They're handling their own money well, so that, of course, leads us to think, They'll handle the resources of the church well. Uh, so you see simply this, that the, the personal life of the deacon is to be dignified and marked by self-control. Now, isn't it interesting here, though, that he's talking about the role of deacon, which is a functional, it's a practical role. He's mentioned nothing about competency. He's not talked about intelligence, success. He hasn't talked about any of those things. He's, he's gone right to character. In other words, in the mind of Paul, the character of a person is more significant than the competency of the person. We don't do that in the world. We look at competency usually over character. Can they get the job done? Do they do the job well? A and oftentimes, if their competency is high enough, we'll actually accept a lower character so as to get the competency. You see this in business. You see this in ministry. He's an eloquent speaker. He's, he handles people really well. He, he's really good with people. And so they'll take competency over character. And it's always a fool's errand. Because it always, or usually, will ultimately end in ruin. In other words, what he's saying here is the character of the deacon is to be, is to be dignified. We don't choose deacons based on popularity contests. Well, they're really nice. Or, or they really are easy to approach. Uh, it, it's not that we don't want that. It's just we want to focus first on this. Are they truthful in speech? Are, are they truthful in terms of tempered lives? Are they, of course, willing to sacrifice? Are, are, they, are they tempered in what they want in life? So we want to look at the character, not just the personality, not just the friendliness. Uh, maybe they don't have the outgoing personality of someone else. But that doesn't mean they couldn't be a great deacon. So the personal life is to be godly. Secondly, the spiritual life is to be mature. Now this ought to surprise us because it is a functional role. They need to be doing things, deaconings, whether it's cutting grass, painting walls, managing finances. Uh, it, it, we think of it as very practical, and yet Paul sees it as very spiritual. 
And we see this also in Acts chapter 6, uh, when they appointed the prototype of the deacon. There it says they were to be full of the spirit and wisdom. But notice what he says here in verse 9. It says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, what does this mean, the mystery? Uh, this mystery is not like an escape room where you get certain clues and you've got to work your way out of it. It's not like an Agatha Christie novel. Uh, when he says the mystery of the faith, the mystery in Scripture is always something that is real and present but not yet fully disclosed. It hasn't been fully revealed. So the mystery of the faith is, of course, the gospel. That, and we see this, if you just slide forward, you'd see in verse 16, he was manifest in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit, that he was proclaimed in the world, he was taken up to glory. It's speaking about God's plan that is resting fully upon Jesus Christ, him coming in the flesh, dwelling among us, living a life by which God could say, well done, well done that he would bear our sins, he would be taken up to glory where he waits until he comes to return and bring all things to completion. This plan of God is revealed in Christ. It was promised beforehand. There were hints and there were his marks throughout the Old Testament, but when Christ came, he was able to say, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's now fully revealed in me, Christ would say. In him. So that's the mystery of the faith. And the deacon is to, is to hold to the mystery of faith. And that word for hold means to grip, like a steel grip. I understand the nature of the gospel. I understand the implications of the gospel. To hold it. But not just to know it, but to live it. So the life needs to be lived in light of these scriptural truths. So the deacon's not just to know theology, but theology is, is kind of emanating out of his life. So the faith itself is informing his decisions. Should I make this financial transaction? Should I handle this relational dynamic? How should I handle this business relationship? Well, the faith ought to be influencing how we're thinking about what we're doing so that there is a consistency between the mystery of the faith and the observable behavior of the deacon. They have to be they have to be commensurate with each other. Uh, but obviously they're not perfect. And you notice to hold it with a clear conscience. Uh, sometimes deacons are going to fail. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to sin. Uh, and their consciences are burdened like yours are burdened. And, and what do you do when your conscience is burdened? Well, you relieve it by confession and repentance. You go to God, this merciful, great God, who welcomes us to say, I have sinned against you. Like the man in Luke 18, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, God, knowing that God is rich in mercy. So this deacon, though not perfect, he is going to be keeping his conscience clear by practicing that gift of repentance, even as he fails in aspects of his life. So the spiritual maturity, though, it needs to be tested. Look with me at verse 10. In 10 he says this, And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And we don't know exactly what this test was, uh, but clearly the early church, and we know that the role of deacon was early in the growth of the church because we see them identified in the letter to the Philippians, to the elders and deacons of the church. So it was an office 
even at that early stage of the Philippian church. But they're to be tested. Their lives are to be considered. Their backgrounds are to be reviewed. Their theological positions are to be considered. Uh, do they have the skill set needed to do what they're called to do? So, so there's a testing and examining. In the early church, it was believed that oftentimes they were given a probationary period. They would play that role for a season, and then people could assess it and say, yes, he's qualified to be a deacon. We do that here kind of in the sense that when we nominate a person for deacon, we put their name up, and you have 30 days to consider it, to ask questions, to investigate, to ask questions of themselves. And so that they might be tested, they might be examined. Uh, so you see here a deacon is to be growing spiritually mature. It doesn't say, by the way, a deacon can't teach. That is the one difference in the elder list and the deacons list, that the elders are to be able to teach, but it doesn't mean that deacons don't teach. In fact, deacons often do teach. In fact, David Naylor, our deacon of finance, comes in every year or two and instructs the seminarians on the nature of the tax ramifications for ministers, helping them. Helping, so, so there is a teaching aspect there, uh, but that's not the main distinction for them. So you, you see that their spiritual life is to be mature. Now remember, when I say blameless, blameless is not perfect. It's not without sin. Uh, so we do, we're not triumphalists here. We don't see people in positions of authority or positions of the church and expect that they will not fail us or that I will fail you. Uh, that will happen. And, and it's, it begins with the heart of the deacon taking his own soul to task. And if needed, that you approach with gentleness to point that out. He may not be aware of it. So, so the second window is the spiritual life is mature. The third window is the family life. Look with me at verse 12. Is the family life in order? Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, I spoke about this last week, so I don't need to cover it all again, but remember that husband of one wife, of course, it rules out polygamy, uh, but, but it's really probably speaking more to a one-woman man. There is a devotedness. There is a commitment to the covenant that the man makes to the wife. That this marriage that they have is admirable. Uh, that, that it's something the wife is growing in the faith. She's being cared for. Uh, she's being um, provided for. So th that's a kind of a, a window that we're looking. How is the man leading his wife? But notice it's not just the wife. It's the children and the household. And remember that word for manage means both to exercise authority in a godly way and to be generous in their provision to make sure that the children, the household is well cared for. And so are the children well cared for? Are they obedient? Now last week we learned they don't have to be believers. A, a husband and wife cannot control that. That's by the Spirit of God. But are they faithful to the direction of the parents? This is a window, again, that we're looking through to determine how will this deacon lead in the church. Now, most of us, I think, before we're married, I know for me, I thought I would be a good husband. I, I think that, by and large, I'm easy to get along with, and I, I think I would make a good husband. But then I got married to Carol, and I realized, 
Well, maybe that isn't fully true. You know, I, I began to realize that, no, there's anger in me. There's selfishness in me. There's, you know, but it's in the context of the relationship that these things began to come out. So, so I was made aware that maybe I'm not the most perfect husband. But I was a perfect parent because I could see all my siblings and friends who had children. I could tell everything they were doing was wrong. And if they would only do this, this, and this, then you know what? Their kids would behave just like they should. Then I had children. And I realized, well, maybe I'm not the perfect parent. And I realized how difficult it was and how I could go from zero to ten in a heartbeat. And it became very, but, but it was coming out of me in the context of the relationship. So, so while I was living alone, this doesn't mean that, of course, singles can't be elders or deacons. He doesn't say that. I think, I think by and large, generally speaking, uh, because the family dynamic is such an important window to assess a person's character, I think that they're generally married with children. But that's not a requirement. But, but it's in the context of these relationships that we see who we really are. And we see how we're really going to lead. It's in the fire of families. All of us have had the dinners that started out nice and they just became a dumpster fire. You, you, you know that. I mean, and voices are being raised. Accusations are being made. We've all experienced that. But that's not the issue as much as what do we do in that? How do we handle that? How do we come out of that? How do we lead in that? That's what Paul's driving at here. Because if they can't lead in that context, it's going to be hard for them to lead people that are not biologically related to them. So th that's the dynamic of the family life. Uh, the, the fourth characteristic, or the fourth window that we see, is really not so much a, a qualification as much as it is an encouragement to be a deacon. In other words, I think Paul sees deaconing as a very thankless, hard, challenging, often unnoticed job. And so he gives this encouragement. Look with me at verse 13. He says, For those who serve well... Uh, as deacons, they gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So I think Paul is saying here, you know, he said, hey, the personal life of the deacon has to be godly. Uh, the spiritual life of the deacon has to be maturing. Uh, the family life of the deacon has to be ordered. And here he's saying, that the ministry life has to be fruitful. In other words, they, they will gain a good standing. So Paul's encouraging us to consider about that role of deacon as a good thing. What does it mean to gain a good standing? And, and, and before whom are we gaining this standing? Is it before God? Is it before the congregation? Is it before the outside world? Well, perhaps it's all of them. I mean, definitely before God. If you're using your gifts... In the capacity of a deacon, serving other people, uh, I do think you'll gain a good standing before God. On the day of judgment, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We know that in the parable of the talents. Uh, those who were given talents, and they invested them in the work of the kingdom, uh, that when the day of accounting comes, we stand before God, and he sees what you've done, he says, well done. I, I mean, to be commended by the creator of all things, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's a good standing. Or I think about in Matthew 25 when Jesus said, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. You, the sheep, come, enter the joy of eternal life. So, so gaining a good standing, I think, is that even though the congregation, the world may not see what you're doing, God does. 
God does, and you'll gain a good standing with him. But I do think that there's a good standing before the congregation. In other words, those of us, we're being served by a number of different players. As I said, David Naylor in finance, you know, overseeing, and you saw all the charts that he gave. That's a lot of work producing to let us know this is where we are in a financial posture. Uh, or Greg Morton over the, uh, over the facilities, and Sean, uh, Sean Williams over benevolence. Th these men are serving us uh, in ways that we don't see or perhaps we don't even uh, directly benefit from, but we're being Do they have a good standing in your eyes? So in other words, if you came walking up the sidewalk of the church in two weeks and the grass was up to your knees, what would you think? <clears throat> Wouldn't you think, What's going on around here? Why isn't the grass getting cut? I mean, goodness gracious, you know, we could have cattle out here. Nobody, I, very few of us would think, where are the keys to the shed so I can get the mower and I can go to the station to get gas to put in the mower to cut? We wouldn't think that way. We'd just be looking around wondering, hey, who's not keeping the place up? Uh, these, these players in our life are serving us diligently. Uh, let us be those who... Hold them in high regard. They're doing us an incredible favor. Uh, they're keeping the place going so that we, they're definitely serving the elders to free us up to pray and to preach and to consider very little because they're so well handled by these, by these men. So let them be in good standing in our eyes. But I also think that they gain some good standing on the outside world. Remember now, the context of this letter is false teachers had come in, their theology was false, their lives were disordered, and so they began to be a stain in the community of the church. And so good deacons will bring repute to the outside world of the value of the church. But they don't just gain a good standing, you see that they are confident in the faith. You know, there is a principle here in Christianity that when you walk in a way apart from God, you take paths that are not God-ordained paths, you're going to have a measure of guilt and shame, and you're burdened, and you do not feel confident in the faith. You don't feel that, that nearness of God oftentimes. But when you do exercise your faith, when you do use your gifts for the glory of God, you do find yourself increasing uh, both in confidence and even boldness in the faith. I think that's what he's driving at here. So I think Paul's trying to encourage us, encourage us, just like he encouraged elders. You know, if you aspire to the office of elder, you aspire to a noble, it's a noble task. I think he's encouraging people to consider the role of deacon as well. You'll gain a good standing. You'll gain confidence in the faith. Now, the elders, of course, traditionally from Acts 6, they will determine the task. So we have elders over facilities and, and finances and benevolence. Uh, we're considering the role of other things that have budgets and responsibilities, whether it be media or ushers and, and various other capacities that might be considered deacons as well. It's always hard to determine, is this just a, a ministry area of service or should we call it and move it into a role of a deacon? that the elders test and examine deacons before they are brought forth to you for consideration of 30 days, and then they're, they're voted on. But is this role of deacon only for men? There's a big debate about this. 
Oh, well, look with me at verse 11, because he speaks to women. Now, <clears throat> we know that Paul's already prohibited women from being an elder, but what about a deacon or deaconess? Look with me at 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So he's speaking about women here. Uh, they're to be dignified. That's the same word from verse 8. That's, you know, respectable, uh, worthy of honor. Uh, they're to be not slanders, which is considered like not double-tongued. You know, they're speaking the truth. They're not breaking confidentiality and speaking about others to others. That's, a, that's just a, it's a church crusher when we do that. Um, they are to be sober-minded, faithful in all things. So you see that the qualifications are kind of quite similar. But who does it apply to? Is it the wives of the deacons, or is it a whole other order? Now, uh, normally I don't do this. Normally I don't give you, you know, for and against because it confuses you. You know, I give you three or four arguments for one and three or four arguments for the other, and you, you forget the first three that I gave you. And, and normally I don't do that because it can be confusing. But I want to try to do it today because I think it's important. Now, if you want more information, if you want the notes, or if you want more links, then I'm happy to send it to you. But uh, there is an argument to be made that it applies to the wives of deacons. Uh, a few reasons for that are, number one, that, that you don't see, um, there's no mention made of the marital faithfulness of the woman. So it could be because he does that in verse 12. Uh, uh, secondly, you see that he goes back to describing the deacon in verse 12. So he talks about the male deacon in 10, he talks about a woman in 11, and he talks about the male deacon again in 12. So it seems sandwiched between the speech on male deacons that maybe it applies to the, um, to the wives of deacon. Or, or some people say, well, he could have just used deaconess. He could have used deacon in the feminine form, referring to women. So there is an argument to be made that this qualification in verse 11 applies to the wives of our deacons. Uh, but there is an argument for deaconesses. And that is this, and there's a few things for it. Uh, number one, you see likewise again, don't you? So you go from elders, likewise deacons. It's the, it's the moving to another order in the church. And then he says, likewise, women. So, so it could mean that he's looking at another role for women as deaconesses. Now, the second thing is that the word woman and the word wife in Greek are the same. So context has to determine it. So I could read this in Greek and likewise women be dignified. So, so the word woman and wife is the same. Context determines it. Now you see the, the there there. That is the T-H-E-I-R there. T-H-E-R-E. -E. Okay, that there, T-H-E-I-R, is not there. T-H-E-R-E. -E. So it's implied so the trans and I don't want to undermine your trusting in the English translations, but anytime you come from a, a language of one language to another, translators always have to make certain translating decisions, and you hope that they're doing it fair, and, you're, and they, that's why they have committees of translators to make sure that one person's view doesn't just color all the translational direction of a, of a text. Uh, but they, ESV, which I love, we use here, uh, but they have gone with, clearly, the wives of deacons, but that there is not there. 
So you could literally translate it, women likewise are to be dignified. So that would be an argument for the role of deacons. Another argument is that there are no expectations on the wives of elders, right? The elders, there is nothing said about their wives, and yet here there is something said about the deacons. Additionally, uh, the same qualifications in verse 8 for the men are the same ones used for women in verse 11, implying it's an order. And, and then last, Phoebe, uh, she's the lady that you'll meet in Romans 16, 1 and 2. She was the one bringing the letter, probably the Roman letter to the Roman church written by Paul. She's called a deacon. Now, she's masculine form, which means you don't always use the the, you know, the gender form, it's a masculine form, she is called a deacon. Now, it's translated servant, but it's servant, but it's the same word, diakonos. So, you have wives of deacons and you have deaconesses. I just want to show you that both arguments can be made. It, there's no slam dunk. It's not super clear that it's one way or the other. And when we have that kind of, that kind of situation in Scripture, we always want to act with charity. We want, when there's no clarity, when there's less clarity, let's act with charity. In other words, let's not bring restrictions where they might not fit. We know that Paul is already able to say women are prohibited from certain things, but he doesn't seem to prohibit women from the role of deacons. So, so I would ask you just to pray for us. We're discussing this, or will be discussing this as elders. We've had deacons here before in the church, uh, in the past when I got here, Beverly Perry was a deaconess. And so we're just considering how ought we to walk forward on this. Do we understand it as the wife of a deacon or do we understand it as the role? So pray for us as we go forward on that. Uh, but at the end of the day, here's, here's what we want to walk away with. Deacons are an incredible gift to the church. They are here to serve us, to bring the sweetness of service. And our deacons are really reflecting the king of all deacons, the king of deacons. The one I'm speaking about, and this is what's going to lead us to the bread and the wine, is that the king of the deacons, Jesus, calls himself a deacon. So in Mark chapter 10, 45, he says, For the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he sees himself as a deacon, and the way he serves us is by laying down his life. And this is, I think, what Paul's driving at with the role of deacons, because just in a few verses, he does say that the mystery of godliness is that he was manifest in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit, he was seen by angels, he was proclaimed in the world, and he was taken up to glory. That Christ as a deacon has come to save. And this is what we want to marvel over. His, his service to us has been successful. His service to us is life-giving. I mean, think about it. When you look at the bread, and, and remember now, it's so beautiful that our celebration of both baptism and the Lord's table, they're done with real things. It's real bread-ish. But it's, it's something real. You feel it between your fingers. There's a reality to it, pointing to the reality that he really had a body, and upon that body was placed our sins and our guilt and our shame. And upon that body, that real body, bore a curse 
that we should have borne. And on that body was laid our sins, and the judgment of God fell for them. So when you hold the wafer in your fingers, it's going to feel real between your fingers because it really happened. And he really did bear our sins. And when you look at the cup, that cup, that real cup, the juice that you will really drink, uh, that cup represents a new covenant, a covenant that is made in his blood, a covenant that brings to us forgiveness, adoption, reconciliation. It's not a covenant that has to be repeated every year like the old covenant. It's a better covenant. It's a new covenant. And it's a new covenant because it's established in his perfect blood. He's given us these these tangible signs to remind us of the reality of which they point. They're symbols. They don't have an intrinsic value in themselves, but they're lenses through which we look to the reality of Christ and Him crucified, His blood shed for the reconciliation of all things, saving us. So we want to marvel over those things. We don't want to worship them. We don't want to treat them special like they become something different than they were when we opened them, but they point to something incredibly real. So we want to marvel over that. We want to rejoice that in this reconciling work that he has served us with, that he's going to draw all things to himself. Not just those who have faith in Christ, but, but the whole of creation is groaning, waiting, longing for him. And this meal is to be just kind of getting your appetite going so that you will long for him, that the brokenness of our world will be overcome as he returns and brings us to himself. So let's take a moment and just silently close our eyes and reflect on the glorious servant that he is as our king deacon. And then in a moment, and, and, and ready your heart for this. And then in a moment, I'll pray for us.